0: Lord God, um, thank you for this beautiful season. Thank you for the change of temperature and the change of the sights and the smells. And, And God, it is a sign that you are always creating, always renewing, always bringing life. And we understand winter, God, even though it feels like death and it is coming. It's a part of life, and so God, we we see all things through the the goodness that you have toward us and towards your creation in in creating and sustaining uh, all things in heaven and on earth. And God, we long for the eternal kingdom. We long for the eternal kingdom uh, and the eternal treasures of Jesus. And while the treasures you have given us on this earth are enjoyable, they are not full as you are. And so, God, as we look here at the the rich man today in the Gospel of Mark, we we pray that you would help us to see his dilemma and see our own, see our own dilemma and the power of greed that it can have over us. And Father, perhaps more than any other challenge that we have in this culture, we recognize greed and we ask that you would help us to see the life in Christ that greatly surpasses the life given to greed and the accumulation of material possessions. God, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and truthfully from your text and that uh, you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us, God, for we know that your truth is only discerned through your Spirit and his work. So God, convict us, teach us, and uh, draw us into your presence together. In your Son's name, amen. So if you have paid attention to the news in the last month or so, you will undoubtedly have seen the scandal that is brewing and has been brewing and continues to brew around Wells Fargo. up to two million fake accounts were created by Wells Fargo employees for the purpose of getting more fees from those accounts. The owners of the accounts had no idea that they were being created, uh, and just millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, were generated uh, by these these really fraudulous accounts. Um, and initially, when it came to light, and it's been in, under investigation for several years now, um, and, and Wells Fargo paid $185 million in fines to, to uh, settle the case with the government, um, but then began a, a kind of a I would say a political uh, investigation and uh, the, the blame was initially put up put on uh, low-level employees in the branches uh, and they ended up firing like 5,300 branch employees uh, but as it turns out as they kept digging the investigators found that um, it it really has been the culture of Wells Fargo. Um, and just, I use Wells Fargo and have since, I've used Wells Fargo since high school. Um, and so I'm not like picking out Wells Fargo. It's just a great example of, of what we're trying to talk about today out of this passage. Uh, Wells Fargo had a culture of Greed. And it wasn't just 5,300 branch employees, low level employees. It was an entire culture, and, and the management knew about it. So, from top to bottom, Wells Fargo was guilty of greed and fraud for the purpose of making money. And the the low-level employees were motivated by making money because their jobs and their bonuses and their incomes were dependent upon it. And the high-level people uh, making millions of dollars a year were in it for the pursuit of money for better bonuses, better positions, promotions, et cetera. Um, The value of the stock has dropped 10% since the news broke. And the CEO resigned last week, gave up $41 million in bonuses, uh, but still walked away with $130 million and had been making tens of millions of dollars a year. Now, we can all get judgmental of Wells Fargo or the other big banks, but The corporation of Wells Fargo is not unique. Uh, Thousands of employees, and if you think that U.S. Bank or J.P. Morgan or Swiss Bank or Deutsche Bank, if you think those banks are any different, or even the small hometown banks across the street are any different, you're wrong. You're wrong. Uh, America is consumed by greed. It is consumed by greed. And we can't judge the individuals or the institutions without evaluating ourselves. For Jesus himself said, Be, be wary of, of seeing the splinters in the eyes of other people before you take a look at the logs that are in your own eyes. And Jesus wasn't just saying that to have a cute phrase. He was saying that because we have logs in our eyes, and yes, we are able to see the splinters in other people's eyes that they aren't able to see, but we've got huge problems um, ourselves, and we always do. There's uh, an organization called Peacemakers that um, has this process that they have people go through when they're trying to resolve conflicts between parties. And uh, step number one is, is give glory to God, which means that you, you set aside the need to always be right and always be honored and to be ready to recognize wrongs in, this, in conflict resolution. The second step is take the logs out, which comes before their third step of, okay, identify now where you feel like you've been wronged. It's a great process. So we can't sit in judgment of Wells Fargo or any of the big banks or small banks. It is a condition of the heart um, that, that we especially as Americans, okay, it's not just Americans. Greed and global capitalism and all of these things are spreading around the world and, and it is a condition of, of, of humanity. It's a condition of humanity. We do have a culture though that has, uh, we have not fought it. We have not fought it, we we engage it. If you want a great book, and I'm gonna quote a little bit from it, but uh, it's in its third edition now because it's been such a, such a uh, profound book uh, in cultural analysis. It's called Affluenza and there are multiple authors for it. But the first edition came out in 2001 and it's in its third edition now from 2014. Um, and it's, it, it is a great diagnosis of American culture showing the symptoms and the causes and and somewhat of a cure of being free from it well jesus has been identifying greed and humanity for all time jesus was identifying greed and humanity in the earliest of people man and woman in the garden and jesus was identifying greed in, in ancient israel and the surrounding nations and jesus was identifying greed when he was on earth And so we're gonna look at what Jesus has to say about about greed and about our propensity to be absorbed and taken in by greed. And so we're gonna look at Mark chapter 10 uh, verses 17 through 31. If you don't have a Bible, there's some along the side here. Um, If you don't have one on your, your phone or device, Mark chapter 10 verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, "'A man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' "'And Jesus said to him, "'Why do you call me good? "'No one is good except God alone. "'You know the commandments, do not murder, "'do not commit adultery, do not steal, "'do not bear false witness, do not defraud, "'honor your father and your mother.' "'And he said to him, "'Teacher, all these things I have kept,' from my youth and Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him you lack one thing go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see we have left everything and followed you And the last first. So we see here that there is an, an image of being rich and of being good. We also see the deceptiveness of riches and the deceptiveness of good. And then Jesus is teaching us a way to be truly rich and truly good. So first of all, the image of being rich and good. So here you have a man and he has everything. He has everything. But notice this man is running after Jesus. This man is running after Jesus. He has a question. Because he he doesn't have everything, and he knows it. So he's running after Jesus, and he kneels down. This is the only other time where somebody has knelt down in front of Jesus as an expression of need was a leper. In fact, it's one of the only two instances in the Gospels that talks about a person who pursues Jesus and kneels before him because of a recognition of their need. So here's a man who has everything and all of his riches, but is still lacking. His actions and his conscience, conscience, uh, they betray him. They betray his need. He's got everything. Jesus says, you still lack. And he knows he's lacking. I think it, it seems like you, you, I'm sure you have all had times, I can't think of a specific one in my life, but I know it's frequent enough to where, to where I can identify it, where there's something that you're insecure about and you need to talk to somebody or do something in order to put your mind at ease quickly. And until it gets resolved, you, you're nervous and you're anxious and worried about it. And that, that seems to me to be the case here with this rich man. He's got everything, but there is something that he is quite insecure about. And we see that he is enslaved. We see that he is enslaved to his riches. He's enslaved to the material possessions that he has. He is enslaved to this lifestyle. And he's also enslaved to a hardenedness, to a hard hard heart and a stiff neck, the scriptures call it, because he goes away disheartened. Jesus tells him to give up everything he has. And he goes away disheartened because he knows he's in need. He knows he has a problem that needs to get resolved. It seems like he really even knows that Jesus can help him with it. And so he goes with this desperation to solve what he sees as lacking in his life. And he can't, he can't come to the point of pursuing the fulfillment of what is lacking. And he is conflicted and depressed. And his mood, literally, the, his mood was darkened He got the answer he was looking for. He got the answer he was looking for, but he wasn't happy with the answer. His actions and his conscience betray the conflict that is within him. But he can't break free. He can't break free from it. And the passage reveals why. Notice, you know, when Jesus' first comments, re- replies to him, you know, he comes, he, he says, good teacher, and Jesus' first, and he asks Jesus the question. Jesus doesn't answer the question. Jesus addresses why he called him good. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. But this man, the text reveals, and Jesus' interaction with him reveals that this man has a perception of what good is. He has a perception of what good is, and Jesus' interaction is gonna reveal this. And so Jesus says, okay, only God is good, why do you call me good? But then he answers the question, you've heard the commandments, you've heard the commandments, And I want to go back and I want to read them. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And the defrauding, I think, is actually a part of the lying one. Anyway, five or six commandments, depending on how you interpret it. And typically, when I've read through that passage before, and you've probably read this the same way, like, oh, okay, Jesus is just kind of throwing out a smattering of some of the commandments for us to kind of make a connection between uh, the person who fulfills the commandments uh, is is considered a good person. But you read through that list, and you, you step back and you ask yourself the question, okay, why these commandments and not the other five? I was studying in the at Luther Seminary. It's where I go on Fridays. It's real close to the office. It's a, you know it's it's a great seminary library. All the resources you need, all the online databases, and so it's very quiet. So it's um it's it's Luther, so it's Lutheran, and so they have a big poster on one of the walls in the library uh, that is kind of quoting a part a portion of Luther's Small Catechism, which is a great piece of literature. Um, and part of Luther's catechism, his small catechism, is that is the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Commandments. And Luther is giving instruction to all the household heads to memorize the Ten Commandments, because most of them couldn't read. So they had to memorize the Ten Commandments and instruct their families in the Ten Commandments. And so he had this little thing that they had to memorize, and then the commandment itself, and he had some commentary that they needed to memorize. And so So I just went up because I knew that they were there and so I went up and I looked at this poster instead of turning to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 and, and so I just read through the commandments and I said, which ones are missing? Which ones are missing? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and you shall worship him alone. You shall not worship images of God. You shall keep the Sabbath. Those are the first three that are missing and it's one, two, and three. And then it's missing the last two. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, number nine. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his donkey or whatever, his possessions. Now, the, the Ten Commandments are ordered um, in a particular way. And, you know, in all the other times that Jesus has been asked this question, You know, what is the greatest commandment? What do we have to do? It's always love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Not this time. See, the first commandment orients us to the ultimate, it is the ultimate commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And see, if you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, the other nine come easy. The other nine are dependent upon number one. And number two, you shall worship nothing else. You shall not make an image of God. God is, is, is known through spirit, not in physical objects. Because if you, if you make an image of God, you begin to see God as restricted to this physical object. When, when Israel made the golden calves, and it had several instances throughout its history where it made idols to represent God, they said, here Israel is the God who brought you out of Egypt and referring to these golden images. God is not to be known in objects that we can fashion and possess. And the third one, you shall honor the Sabbath, why? Because a Sabbath is a recognition of God's blessing in our lives that we don't have to work for. That we don't have to work, I mean we work, God instructs us to work. As an image bearers of God, he works so we work. And we, we know God through our work, and we provide for ourselves and others through our work, which is a, an image of God, those are image of God things, but we are not enslaved to our work. We can rest from our work knowing that God will provide. So it's all those first three are orienting our understanding of who God is and of his generosity toward us. And then the last, number nine and ten, do not covet. Do not desire something that is not yours. God will provide what you need. And so Jesus doesn't include those in the commandments that he tells this rich man. And the rich man doesn't say, Jesus, you left out five. (laughs) What's he say? I've kept these from my youth. See, the man's understanding of good, and this is what we often do, the man's understanding of good was limited to specific behaviors. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not an adulterer. I love my parents and my family. I don't lie. We we set up a moral framework for, for evaluating ourselves as to whether or not we are good. We are good. How many times do you have a conversation with people or how many times have you said yourself, I'm a good person. Sometimes when I'm counseling somebody and I'm trying to work into their lives and there's stuff that they're just not seeing, a common response out of a fear of addressing what is there is, but I'm a good mom. I'm a good Dad, I'm a good, it's just, I'm a good, and and I'll stop and say, you know, why do you keep telling me that you're good? And then I quote this passage, only God is good. (laughs) Let's deal with the problems and quit trying to acknowledge that we are good. So this man has wrapped up in his wealth also a sense of his morality, And there's a self-deception that occurs with morality and riches. And that is what the man can't break free from. His sense of self is wrapped up in his wealth and in his morality. And he cannot break the shackles of his greed. This book, influenced. I'm gonna have several quotes. Addiction to stuff is not easily understood. Addiction, you can't break free, it's enslaving you. It's not easily understood. It is a bubbling cauldron of such emotional states as anxiety, loneliness, and low self-esteem. And then they quote a woman named Leanne who had two apartments. One apartment was her own, the other apartment was with her live-in boyfriend. And she didn't realize her sickness in, in greediness until she moved all of her clothes from her boyfriend's apartment when she broke up with him to move back into her own apartment. And on top of having more stuff than she could fit into one apartment, she saw that most of the things that she had, she had two of. And she had never realized it before. And so this woman, Leanne, says this, I'd like to think I shop because I don't want to look like everybody else. So I'd like to shop so I can be distinct. Well, okay. There's some issues behind that one, but it's not even the deeper issue. Leanne confides anonymously. But the real reason, I thought this was amazing, the real reason is because I don't want to look like myself. It's easier to buy something new and feel good about yourself than it is to change yourself. So her shopping was was bubbling out of a desire for a new self, a new self-image, a new identity. And so greed is an effort to remake the sense of self. Think of the woman in the garden with the man. They saw that the apple or the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was beautiful, would make them smart and wise, and would provide for them. And the eating of something is the desire to be one with, to consume and make it you. So it was the desire to possess beauty, the desire to to possess knowledge and wisdom, the desire to possess uh, sustenance and self-sufficiency. God had promised all of those things. But the condition of of, of humanity is is the desire to be our own self and to not be dependent upon the God who created us. And that is the enslavement. That is the enslavement. The longing to make ourselves in our own image of whatever that is, with the full recognition that where we are at is not it. So, greed, according to Jesus' words, and I think our own, we would have to say it as well, uh, is the greatest opponent. To following Jesus. It is the greatest obstacle. It is the greatest idol. We're going to look at Revelation next spring, January through March, and we're going to see that uh, in the story of the, the day of the Lord and the, the, the ending of all things in the apocalypse, um, there is a, a rising up of, of, of the leader that we understand to be the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is uh, emerges in power and c- comes to global power um, and and destroys his last greatest competitor. It's not Jesus. He'll fight Jesus later and lose. Um, his last greatest competitor is called Babylon. And Babylon, as described in Revelation 17 through 19, is not the Roman Catholic Church. It's not, and obviously it can't be Saddam Hussein in Iraq at this point, even though for a long time everybody was saying that. It's not something that emerges out of the Middle East. Babylon is a global culture of out of control capitalism. Because the ones who are wailing, the ones who are wailing are the politicians and the merchants who have been in bed together for millennia that have lost their livelihoods. The Antichrist will destroy global capitalism. It is the greatest competitor To Jesus, it's the greatest competitor to the devil, and the devil will destroy it before Jesus destroys him. That's our inner conflict. Our desire to feel fulfilled and to be fulfilled, it's an aspect of, of forming our own righteousness, to use Paul's terms, is deceptively sustained by greed. Psychologists tell us that pathological buying is typically related to a quest for greater recognition and acceptance. And there's a recognition in our secular culture that this is a problem, and it is affecting the quality of our lives. And there are several chapters in this book. Again, the book is called just Affluenza, the Disease of Greed. The economist Herman Daly says this, "'Consuming becomes pathological "'because its importance grows larger and larger, "'so our need to buy becomes larger and larger "'in direct proportion to our decreasing satisfaction. "'So the more lonely and anxious and unfulfilled we feel, "'the more we buy, "'and the more we buy, the more unfulfilled we feel.'" and lonely, and anxious, and depressed, but the deception doesn't end. The deception doesn't end. We don't see it. We just keep thinking that, that buying things and accumulating things will fill that desire, but it doesn't go away, and again, these are, this, I'm not quoting Scripture here. I'm quoting contemporary psychologists and social scientists and and economists. And Jesus' statements show this deception. Jesus says twice, it is impossible or really hard, very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are flabbergasted. And you have to ask yourself, why were the disciples flabbergasted at Jesus' statements? They too were deceived. It, 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 just, it simply shows that there was some mindset around wealth and goodness because they thought, man, if a rich man can't enter the kingdom of God, they, they say, well, who then can be saved? They understood that if you were, in the king, if you were a part of the nation of Israel and were wealthy, Your wealth was a factor, a function of God's blessings on you because of your goodness. And if you were poor, there must have been something morally wrong with you because you were not receiving the blessings of God. And that's how you saw the Pharisees acting and the religious scribes acting throughout the Gospels. And the disciples were also deceived by this same idea. See, our... Our walk with Jesus Christ doesn't immediately reveal all the sin within us. Remember, the disciples, after they had come to know Christ as Messiah and had devoted their lives to him and to give up everything for him, Jesus is now working through their inner stuff. The first thing he identified as this this desire to be great needed to be squelched and turned into a desire to serve now they're dealing with materialism just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with we enter we follow Jesus because he's life and once we come to know Jesus Christ he's now going to work life into us which is why we've got to lose what we understand to be life in order to take on his life and so the disciples, Jesus is, is wanting to, to use this rich man as an example to his disciples and he repeats the statement twice. Disciples, you're the same way. You're not any different than this rich man. You're under the same deception that goodness and morality coupled with wealth is a sign of God's pleasing, being pleased with you. And that is not true. It is not true. But it is the greatest level of self-deception, which is why Jesus says it is so impossible. And there's nothing fancy or historical about the camel and the eye of the needle. Jesus was talking about a camel, and he was talking about a needle. And they said, well, only God, only God can cure this disease of affluenza. Only God can break the deception that Wealth and morality equate with righteousness. And so Jesus says what it really takes to be rich and what it really takes to be good. First thing we need to do is understand our lack. You know, it's a beautiful statement. Jesus, he says, you know what? You lack something. Here's a rich man with everything. You lack something. You lack something. And what the rich man lacked was an understanding of where life and fulfillment came from. And that it doesn't come through greatness and that it doesn't come through riches, but that it comes through him. And so Jesus tells him, give up all you have, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you know, people have read this and are like, ooh, that's too much for me to ask. How am I, how am I gonna provide for my family if I sell everything I have and give it all to the poor? That I'm gonna be a burden to my family and to the church. Jesus isn't prescribing this this principle for all of us to follow. Jesus knew that this man's problem was his greed and his deception around wealth and morality. And so Jesus knew that the thing that would draw, the the thing that, that would get this rich man would be this one statement. Sell everything you have. Because the rich man needed to be confronted with his idolatry, his idolatry of greed and his idolatry of self-righteousness and morality. And so Jesus is, his statements, his inclusion of the five commandments and his exclusion of the other five. Everything that Jesus is telling this man is directly dealing with this person's greed. And so we have to recognize our lack and we have to recognize our constant drive for self-righteousness based upon a morality and based upon material possessions. They feed each other. I'm watching, um, anybody watching the Netflix series Narcos? All right, was two of you? Okay. I wouldn't recommend it, all right, (laughs) but I enjoy it. So Pablo Escobar in the 80s was a drug trafficker from Colombia. This man at one point was the seventh richest man in the world making more than most of the global CEOs and bankers. $30 million a day this guy was making. They were making so much money they would have to bail it up and bury it in holes because they couldn't find enough places to store the money. And he lived modestly. He had a family, had a couple kids, a beautiful wife. He started off like as a smuggler, stealing televisions, and then got into cocaine and basically supplied the entire city of Miami with cocaine for many years. But it was never enough. And he thought of himself as good he gave a lot of money and built a lot of homes for the, for the poor in Colombia, in his hometown. Um, and, and you can see, I mean, I'm, you know, it's a television series and there's a lot of things that aren't perfectly factual. But you can see in this man, Pablo Escobar, he had a sense of self-righteousness and goodness. And again, we can easily judge Pablo Escobar We can easily judge the CEO of Wells Fargo and the other big banks. But um, if we don't put ourselves into the place of that rich man, if we don't put ourselves in the place of the disciples, we are not gonna see our need, we're not gonna see our lack, and we're not gonna see where Jesus can come in. So what do we do if we don't, if, if, if if, if selling all that we have and giving to the poor isn't the biblical prescription for everyone? The spirit behind it is. The spirit behind it is, do not think that life comes from what you have. Do not think that life is, is, a, is a product of your morality and material wealth. Life is from Christ, and, and Christ is the only one that is going to supply that life. So what, But what do we do? What do we do? There is biblical teaching. We're not going to get into all the details today. There is biblical teaching on developing a financial framework of spending, saving, and serving. There's a a new book that came out this year called God and Money. It's written by a couple of um, Harvard Business School graduates who also happen to be Christians. Uh, It is the best book that I have seen on practical suggestions of how to think about money, what you spend, what you save, and how you use it to serve. They say this, many Christians determine their level of giving based on how much they believe they must give in order to obey God. This is a great quote. We argue that these individuals are thinking about the question backward. Embracing the notion that everything we have truly belongs to God leads instead to the question, how much do I really need to keep? How much do I need to keep? The book's called God and Money, How We Discover True Riches at Harvard Business School. So the idea is this you figure out what you need to live on to meet your expenses and to meet your biblical obligations and determine to give the rest of it away. And so they've got, they've got a great process that you go through in their book that helps you determine what, what do I need to live on to meet the biblical obligations that God has given us in his word and, they, and, and, and then you set, you set that amount and you give everything else away. It keeps you living at a place that doesn't pursue materialism. Because let's say you make a half a million, and you know, these are Harvest Business School grads. One of them started his own business. The other one was making tons of money from an oil company. All right, so these guys are in the realm of making in the six figures when they're out of school. If you're thinking about it, um, of, if you're thinking about it in the, like they would say, the old way, yeah, you make 300 grand a year, 400 grand a year, you give 10% of that away, and you still are sitting on a big pile of money, but you've been very generous because of you've, you've given so much away. But you can easily develop a materialistic lifestyle with that much money and beat, you know, be given your 10% away or your 20% away, maybe even you're giving to the church, you're giving to the poor, but are materialistic. They say, listen, figure out what an average person can live on in this world. Set your your limit and give everything else away. Because you have money to fulfill the things that God wants you to do, and the rest is there to fulfill more of the things that God wants you to do. We're working on a faith and work equipping effort in the church over the next couple of years, and they're gonna be part of our regular equipping process across the church, and we're gonna incorporate this book into it. How we think about money is affected by how we think about work and vice versa, and if we see ourselves as workers for the kingdom, it is, a, it is a tremendous resource that we could have for kingdom purposes, for, for, for contributing to the welfare of our city. If we all develop the mentality of determining a, a lifestyle base and giving everything else away, you'll work harder and make more and have more joy. And that's what Jesus says. If you want life now, serve God with your money. Don't use it to develop an identity, <laughs> Don't use it to give yourself a new sense of self. Let Jesus give you a sense of self. Let Jesus give you joy. Let Jesus give you fulfillment. Let Jesus give you life. And you can use your money to experience the fullness of Christ because you're not using it, you're not enslaved to it. He says, You're going to have more life now. You're going to have brothers and sisters and lands and houses. And I saw this just recently. In our, in our house church, we had a, a woman in our house church who through a variety of circumstances, she gave me permission to say this, I'm not gonna tell you who it is, through a variety of circumstances and reasons, did not have a family that she could depend upon to be family, specifically concerned with what happens if something happens to me and there's a huge financial burden and I can't cover it with my savings and I'm no longer able to work, what's gonna happen to me financially? Because I don't have a family that I can depend upon. Someone else in our house church was in a place of great need for important things. So we just had a meeting as a house church. Hey, here's the need. We've got to meet it. Over a few weeks' time, we came up with $3,000, not through the church budget, just the households of the church giving above and beyond what they had been giving to the church and Twin Cities Ministries or whatever, 3,000 bucks to meet these needs. And at that meeting, this this woman got tearful and was crying and explained, now I know I have a family. I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's not an isolated story. This has happened a number of times, um, not only in our church, in our house churches We had a a condition last year uh, where a neighbor of a church member, a tree fell onto their house and the insurance didn't cover it, $5,000, and the house church came up with $5,000 to give to the neighbor of a church member. That's what the people of God are called to do. We're called to, to use our money to serve the purposes of the gospel and other people. And that is where joy and fulfillment will come from is what Jesus is saying. Listen, the relationships that are gonna develop because of your love for them and the giving to them and when you're in need of receiving from the the relationships and the fullness that Jesus and the Spirit Spirit creates because of, of people coming together and sharing and meeting each other's needs and on mission together to meet the needs of the world. That is where fullness and joy come from. And and the secular economists and sociologists and psychologists, they all testify to that as well. They all testify to that as well, where, where people in community together, meeting each other's needs and serving others, is where the most satisfying relationships and joys and experiences come from. And then there's the treasures of Jesus eternally. The competition is real. Jesus says, listen, you cannot serve God and money. You will not have two masters. You can't keep one leg on one side and one leg on the other. You will be serving money or you will be serving Jesus. If you choose to follow Jesus, your life will be characterized by generous giving. If not, it's gonna be characterized by consumption and it will never be satisfied. It will never be satisfied. And you will lose your life. And as Jesus said in this earlier quote, why gain life now and be in hell for eternity? Or experience destruction for eternity when you can lose these things that aren't even life now and gain life forever. Let me pray. Lord God. What a beautiful passage, and what a beautiful promise. Uh, God, I'm thankful, and just give thanks to you for, for belonging to a church family that I know functions as a church family, to meet needs, to care for people, and to care for the world. I'm really thankful for that, Lord God, for the faithfulness, and for the churches, God, around the world that function in the same way. Jesus and his spirit are mighty indeed. So God, we pray that you would help us as a church to grow in this, to grow in this, your son's name, amen.